Hello and welcome to Monarchism Unfiltered. I'm one of your hosts, McCosk. I'm Iam. And this is me, Bronze. Today we will be discussing um, Turkic dynasties in the Islamic world. And uh, dynasties, not, not just uh, Islamic ones. Well, yeah, so like the steppe nomads in the context of the Middle East, I think, would be the best description. Um, or like the Near East might be a better term. Um, Near East, because we'll also be like a pro, uh, a bro, approaching the nomads in the Ponto-Caspian steppe. Mm, yeah, and also like India probably a bit. But yeah, so I think the... I think to begin, we can probably sketch the you know the generalized trend of um, <clears throat> the kind of stereotypical way in which the Turkic dynasties or these kind of steppe nomad dynasties come about. And I think the best example of that would be the Seljuk Turks um, and the sort of possibly then the Mamluks where they start out as kind of mercenaries, um, replace the army, and then perform coups and take over. Um, and in this way, I think they're probably arguably quite similar to, say, the relationship between Germanic uh, barbarians and, say, um, some, like some, some periods of Roman history um probably like Aetius is the best example of a, an equivalent of that where he was half german you see sort of similar things in the in the um persian world um or the sorry near east um but yeah i mean to mccosk you had you were discussing this quite a bit um recently and i i was wondering what you your thoughts sort of on the on this matter specifically were well to, well, we would have to explain three things. First, that um, the matter of identity, EI for these Turkic peoples, that Turkish identity was often central for their cohesion and power. B, uh, Arab military history and its very short-lived nature. Uh, that, that might be a bit too spicy a take. And three, um, the overly bureaucratic nature of Arab realm. So, to compress a bit so we don't go into like history of the Rashidun, etc. The Umayyads get overthrown, the Abbasids come into power. Abbasids uh, almost immediately establish a Persianate state, which is heavily bureaucratic, relying on slave soldiers. Those slave soldiers were called the Gulams. Well, Gulam, Gulam, I think a singular Gulams. No, wait, that's not how it works. But basically, Gulam is literally generically slave soldier. Um, now, we have to, to point a uh, thing about these early Gulams is that they were not, as a rule, castrated. So when the first of these started to appear in the Abbasid realm and the peripheries of Abbasid states, especially those because, I mean, during this time period, so 9th century, give or take, uh, uh, the, the uh, Persia, which is like the, the centerpiece of these movements, was in a period called the Iranian Intermezzo. In short, all kinds of fucked up, very ephemeris dynasties. Uh, and so slave soldiers started being an important factor in politics, both there, but in the Abbasid court. Persia is important because the Turks, by that point, were already established in what is today 
Tajikistan. Uh, more Uzbekistan and like Turkmenistan. Yeah. So especially Tajikistan is like um, immediately north of Afghanistan. Yeah, yeah, and plus by by this point, like Tajik in the ninth century actually meant something like Iranian, uh, East Iranian, basically steppe nomads. They were still. Yeah. They were still a factor in all of this, but like the Turks really started getting their ascendancy around this time period. So basically, uh, and kind of stereotyping this a bit, these uh, Islamic dynasties became crucially and fundamentally dependent upon their slave soldiers because their slave soldiers were, quote unquote, loyal only to them and not to the regional magnates. Because this was like the issue. Arab military history is often seen as short though this is perhaps an unfair uh, analysis, because after the ration done and uh, up towards the half of the Umayyad um, Caliphate, in not the, uh, the one in Iberia, but the one in, uh, in the Levant, they, an, an immense, just an immense uh, uh, dependence on slave soldiers just started becoming the norm. Do note that this was not universal everywhere because uh, the Abbasid power was also fracturing. So like some of, so like the Tulanids and uh, the Aglabids of um, Africa and further afield did not quite adopt these practices, but yes. So essentially what, what happened with these dynasties is that they became critically dependent on them. They became isolated from local power players. So these were ultimately neutral in their faith. Uh, in their fate, and uh, when uh, and when and when the and when the slave soldiers kind of realized, wait a minute, we are the only thing holding this realm together, so why not coop it and make ourselves lords? Sit Alp Arslan, essentially, the progenitor of the Seljuk Turks. This pattern, although simplified, is kind of the stereotype. There are some exceptions, but generally speaking, most Turkic dynasties from the 9th century, well, a bit earlier, but 9th century to around 13th century at the latest started like this. Slave soldiers on the coup. Only after this do you start, yeah, after this do you really start seeing like Turkic dynasties just popping up because by that point their presence and inclusion in the Muslim world had been normalized. Plus a bit of they were seen as the only thing that could uh, stop the Mongols as it were, or, or as a counter to the Mongols. But that's, that's more speculative. Yeah, I mean, so the interesting thing I think as well with... Um, Alp Arslan and the sort of Turkic dynasties is that um, in a similar fashion to what I think you see with the Almoravids, um, they represented as well a kind of Islamicizing tendency, um, I think, a lot of the time. That say so you see this with um, that, like, he rolls into Jerusalem and he shuts off the, the pilgrimage um, routes, which is what then leads to the um, to the Crusades. And 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 because I, I want to work this into the episode somehow, it also leads to a, a, a brilliant bit of medieval anthropology where Pope Urban II, who is to decree the Crusade a couple of years beforehand, 
uh, writes to some of the people who had become influential in the Crusades, <clears throat> the Turks are Arabs, meaning they are of a Persian race. Powerful. <laughs> Just a statement of a millennium, truly. Powerful. So the, yeah, I mean, that's, that is very big brained. Um, I think as well, I think what's interesting here in this respect is that I think, um, you see this kind of, um, you see this generalized, um, generalized movement of like a Turkish elite, which I think is what um, is most interesting about these uh, Turkish slave soldiers performing coups and so forth, that it is a kind of ethnic elite that rules over um, a sort of a more uh, heterogeneous population, religiously, culturally, so forth, um, that kind of imposes a religious political vision. Um, I think you see this even with like the Mughals. I think the Mughals are like a good example of this later on, um, where they, you know, they sweep in from Pakistan into India um, and impose a kind of um, impose Islam onto onto like a large section of the population, um, which I think. I, think it, I wouldn't say the. You with the Mughals, and I think this is where you're trying to go. Is that you have. Persianate, basically. This is kind of important talking about Turkic dynasties because they were the patrons and truly the people who elevated Persianate culture to its highest. For those who don't know, Persianate is a prompto of Persian and Khanate, Turkic Khanate, how these dynasties are sometimes referred to. Persianate culture is, in fact, just a, a highly Islamicized version of Sassanid Persian culture. Well, sometimes it's not even that particularly Islamicized since since the Shamanay is sometimes even still like spoken uh, in unaltered form. Uh, but uh, the Persianate culture is not only like a courtly culture, a linguistic culture, because a lot of these dynasties adopted uh, Persian as either a bureaucratic language, a bureaucratic language, a court language, or a, um, a lyrical, no, a, a language of erudition, basically. Sometimes it was just one, sometimes it was all three. The Persianate also had a number of like um, bureaucratic elements to it because part of Persianate culture was an imposed uh, and uniformized uh, type of administrative practices. I mean, and and but and although we are making it seem like Persianate culture is something uh, that was only at the high spheres and never trickled down to the lower ranks, uh, it did. For reference. Uh, the Ottoman Empire, until it got overthrown, used the Persian script for its uh, language, for its writing, I mean. Uh, but to recenter this into Persianate culture again, uh, these states, uh, especially, and going back to the Mughals more particularly, Mughal, the Mughals probably uh, raised Persianate culture to its highest form, uh, adopting many syncretical elements of, uh, of uh, Indian, uh, of previously existing Indian sultanates, no doubt, but they were a high point, and they're uniformized uh, and streamlined to a degree as uh, administrative practices like the Diwan and, and what have you are, uh, are without a doubt an element of that. 
I mean, what's, what's quite interesting there as well is that um, the Mughals, um, and this is something that you see later with a lot of Turkic, a lot of Turkic dynasties, is that they, um, uh, is it Tamerlane? I can't remember his his name. Um, Tamerlane. Yeah. What's his name? Yeah, he marries a um, uh, a Genghisid, or um, like, is it Chagatai? Is the other name? Um, the daughter, like, a descendant of um, female descendant of Genghis Khan. Uh, well, a Borgeging, uh, Chagatai. Yeah, yeah, Bur- yeah, yeah. Um, and he defines himself like he calls himself uh, the son-in-law, Gurkani. Uh, um, so the the Mughals called themselves the the sons-in-law. Um, so they had this clear sort of um, they had this clear sort of relationship that they themselves drew between themselves and um, Genghis Khan as well. Um, that is quite interesting in the context of of that Genghis Khan is probably the the second most reviled person in. Persia after probably Alexander, um, and it's this. What's very interesting about this combination of Persianate culture and so forth is that the Turks, really, even insofar as they continue to have a kind of distinct identity of their own, they see themselves as being in continuity with various other steppe nomadic groups like the Mongols. Yeah. Uh, the, by this point, we're really talking about Turko Mongols. I mean, you you see the high point of this in the Crimean Tartars. Uh, this by this point, we're talking like 17s, uh, 1700s, and the like, who um, who the Giray dynasty claimed direct descendant from Genghis Khan himself, and uh, this claim was uh, so powerful and so respected that the Ottoman Sultan. Of whom, who was the nominal suzerain of the of the Giray dynasty, treated him for all intents and purposes as his equal in terms of diplomacy, because that such was the such was the respect conferred to the uh, to the descendants of Genghis Khan, and this remained a thing down to like the 1920s, like the last uh, confirmed beyond well, not even reasonable doubt at this point, but was, uh, oh God, I can't remember his name, but it was an emir who got overthrown by his son, who was a Soviet uh, in the 1920s, who I think was allied with the Basmashi. DJ Khaled. That was him. He supposedly had Genghisid ancestry, though I think that even with him, it was questionable, but it wasn't impossible. I mean... It's not that hard considering like how long ago uh, Genghis Khan lived, but um, yeah, but, but we were talking about like dynastic lineage more so than more so than genetic lineage. Yeah, I mean it's very important. The emphasis is on direct because a lot of people descended from Genghis Khan, but perhaps not directly. Yeah, yeah pro- we three probably are uh, genetic descendants of Genghis Khan. We never know. Probably is a stretch, but maybe. I mean, probably we're only of Charlemagne. So I think um, the, yeah, the interesting 
the other interesting thing I think to highlight um, here, as you said about Persian culture, is that um, this kind of patronage of Persian, um, I think, is probably the biggest definitive shift from from the Arabs because the Arabs themselves, like the Arabic, uh, the Islamic Arabic conquest of, of Persia and so forth, um, established this kind of ethnic minority elite over a vast um, population that was uh, religiously and, and so forth heterogeneous. Um, and so, um, you know, like the the Assyrians and the, the Assyrian Christians and the Manichaeans and the, the all these various groups um, who in many ways represented serious threats to the initial Arab, um, Arab conquerors. I think you see this most clearly with... Um, with the Manichaeans themselves, the Manichaeans actually have a revival in the 800s after the Arabic conquest because of the destruction of the um, Zoroastrian priestly elite um, and the non-penetration expansion of, of uh, Islam in an organized fashion. Another, um, another thing we have to uh, to note here is that, um, and this and this is what and this is goes according to what I am saying, but is an often little forgotten element, is that early uh, is that an early um, Muslim conquests, basically Umayyad or still Russian done, um, the, that um, they had a system of grading people based on how many generations they were converted uh, to Islam, their people. So even the Persians, even the Muslim Persians, we're not even talking about, um, we're not even talking about here uh, of Zoroastrian Persians because those were, were the, the, their status was not good at the time. So even Muslim Persians were second-rate citizens compared to the compared to the Arab elites. We often forget this: is that the uh, more so the Umayyads and the Abbasids than the Rashidun itself, truly. Were, have a very strong Arabizing character to it. Well, so the, I mean, the distinction I think with the Abbasids is that the Abbasids are a reaction against this um, this kind of Arab racism of the of the um, Umayyads. And what's very interesting uh, as well, I think, also the the Umayyads them the Abbasids themselves probably represented a kind of um, uh, primitivizing tendency within um, Islam because Islam at this point was not at all formalized. Um, so the Umayyads, for example, title themselves Caliph of God, um, whereas the Abbasids title themselves the Caliph of the Prophet of God. Um, and the distinction there being that Caliph of God means successor of God and is a title given to um, Adam and Solomon, whereas, um, and so it, it's claiming equality with the prophets, whereas um, Caliph of the prophet of God is, is denoting inferiority um, so to the prophet. Um, so, the Abbasids themselves, I think, represent, and they also brought in a kind of Persianizing tendency where they, you know, they, they bring in um, more Persianized courtly styles. They're more, um, they're less aggressively 
Arab focused. Um, they are more interested in the spreading of Islam as a as a thing, um, and they're more willing for different cultural expressions within the context of Islam. Um, and you see this kind of tendency repeated with the Turks, and as I mentioned, also the Al uh, the Almoravids, where they re they to bolster in many respects their political legitimacy because of their disconnection from um, like their ethnic disconnection and linguistic and kind of like foreignness. They emphasize their Islam their uh, Islamic nature, their their sort of um, Islamic Islamicity. Um, and I think you see this with like Alp Arslan quite clearly. Alp Arslan does like his invasion of of the um, his invasion of the Byzantines is is pretty much motivated by messianicism. Um, so the Sultanate of Rum is like entirely born out of like you know these kinds of really obscure hadiths where it's like and then like at the end of days we shall con conquer constantinople so to, um, add into, to add into what um to what i am saying the stereotypical title uh, of the um of the turkic sultanates in anatolia was ghazi which is which depending on the translation kind of means holy warrior or devoted warrior so messianicism and we will eventually take constantinople was a structural priority of the Turkic dynasties of Anatolia ever since the Seljuks. Yeah, and I, I think um, this this messianic tendency, I think, um, in large part, it is probably genuine, honest. Um, like, you know, like they were <laughs> they were actually uh, they believed it was the end times almost, um, but. I think equally there was a kind of political usefulness um, that you can win over the, you know, you can win over the clerics that you are on their side. But this being said, I think the big change, the shift is that the kind of cultural focus center of the Turks was not Iraq, but sort of Northern Persia, um, Tehran, this kind of area that really leads to, as, as McCosker was talking about earlier, the Persianate dynasties, where because they were semi-Persianized more than they were semi-Arabized, compare, if you compare like Berbers, Berbers being sort of Arabized, um, the, they're sort of almost Persianized. And this, this actually results in pretty much the rebirth of Persian culture um and the the kind of the the loosening of the valve on the repression on persian because even under the abbasids though they aren't overtly almost racist towards the the uh, persians they don't have much time for persian culture um whereas by the time of the um and, and you see this as well with like the Fatimids um, or like the whoever in, in um, that they are very, um, very much Arabizing, whereas, uh, and this has led a, uh, left a deep impact on Iranian, in the uh, Persian language, Farsi as a, as a language is very um, 
heavily influenced by Arabic, but there was you you start. I think it's the Shamana, um, the like multi, incredibly long epics that they write in this period immediately after, where they have the, the Persian state. The Shamana was codified by the Sassanids, basically based upon oral oral poems of the earlier Arsacids. Um, yeah, so it won't be the shaman. Yeah, there were poets who were in this period who were taking self-conscious Persianizing tendencies. Um, uh, and you, I mean, you see this with like philosophers at the time, um, like Al-Farabi or, or um, I believe, or um, Ibn, um, Ibn Rushd, I think, <clears throat> who have a kind of Persianizing Persianizing counter tendency, um, and this is kind of proliferated by the Turks and especially by the um, Ottomans. I mean, you see this with um, Rumi. That Rumi is very, you know, he's writing a lot of the time first language per Persian more than he is writing in Arabic, um, and the result of this is kind of the rebirth of. Persian culture and the positioning of Persian and classical Arabic as kind of co-equals um, in status, which is a very interesting interesting development in in the history of yeah in, the, in this history that kind of continued pretty much until Ataturk and as you say into the nineteen twenties. Um, it's only really with like the Russian conquest and the pro and the the sort of Soviet Union that they kind of move move then again away from from Persian culture um, in a lot of these regions and I mean Pakistan still hasn't moved away from Persian culture um, or Afghanistan I mean Afghanistan is fifty percent Farsi speaking um, Tajik to, yeah and Tajik speaks Persian basically. Yeah, so although this starts about Turkic dynasties are now talking heavily upon Persianate, I think in perhaps a very anachronic point, we'd have to talk about like the Turks themselves, like where do they come from, where do they go, and if they and if they did see Cotton Eye Joe. Um, to to say why did I know that was going to happen? Well, you know me too well. I <laughs> but to 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 okay, so. To dear dear listener, reader, whoever whomever you are, when discussing the etymology, well, not the etymology, the ethnogenesis of the Turks, is important to take in consideration the following statement: Don't, do not discuss where the Turks come from. Discuss rather where their dynasty geographically started, and assume, much like the ancient myths, that they were literally spawned from the earth. It's easier that way than trying to suss out that horrific, horrific mess. That's, with that disclaimer, let's, uh, let's get on this. Turks, as we understand them today, started with the Yokturk Sultanate, Kaganate, it wasn't the Sultanate yet, um, which means uh, Celestial Turks or Central Turks, because many a steppe nomads, uh, the Mong uh, well, the, even before this, I guess, but with the Turks, the, some Turkic dynasties are more famous for this, is that they used Geographical chromatism, which is assigning colors to a specific geographic color. So a, a famous one is Kara, black, uh, meaning south. Red means west. 
blue or sky blue means central, and I can't remember for the love of me what was the name of the north and east. Uh, I mean, you see this even in the pre-Mongolic uh, or proto-Mongolic Kitai, Kara Kitai, which many believe to mean Black Kitai or like Western Kitai, though the etymology is a bit questionable in this regard, but the link exists. So, Goktuk Sultanate blows up like all these, uh, like all these Khaganates uh, do and splits into multiple parts. The ones relevant to our point is going to be the West Goktuk Sultanate, and it's uh, weird and really its greatest legacy, the Asina dynasty. The Asina dynasty is important because you could say they were Genghis Khan before Genghis Khan existed. Because as we said, oh, and as we said earlier, oh, descent from the Genghis Khan was very important and culturally relevant. I mean, the main reason uh, uh, Tamerlane did not claim like the title of Sultan or any more exalted titles in his life he only remained a lowly emir, even though he ruled a massive empire by that point, was because for Central Asian steppe peoples, uh, you could not claim like royal dignity without being related to Genghis Khan. Before this, you had the Ashna clan. And the Ashna clan were similar in that they were basically a kind of multinational, uh, recognized by all Turkic nomads of the time as like aristocracy and nobility of the highest order. The Ashinas nowadays are more familiar with their later correlation with the Khazar Khanate, which has led many to consider the Khazars uh, kind of successors to like the Gokturks in a way. But Khazars to one end, uh, a more important, especially to the Turks we're talk we talked about is, is the Oguz Yabgu state. Um, Yabgu means prince for, 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 for those who have a passing interest in ethnology. The Oguz Yabgut state is more or less important because it gave its name to Oguz, which nowadays means the group of Turkic languages that is most dominant. Basically, your Turkish, your Turkmen, etc., 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 all have their origin, give or take, in this state. And um, the breakdown of the state and its fragmentation, etc., basically set the stage for like Alp Arslan and the like, going back to the Khazars. The Khazars are interesting on many a level, both institutionally and politically. Before their conversion to Judaism, we aren't exactly sure onto, onto what strain of Judaism they converted, but they were Jewish at one point, but we're talking when they weren't. Um, they were famous and quite rare for being a diarchy, basically. The Ashina clan, who was both the ruling clan and, well, we suppose, we don't really have that much info, but we know for a fact that the Khan Bek which was a kind of religious-esque figure in the early Khazar Khaganate, was, without a doubt, uh, of Ashina blood. We go from uh, the we go from this and their conversion to Judaism, and we have still the Ashinas ruling, though by this point their dynasty is, call, is more stereotypically called the Bulanids after Bulan, uh, who is, according to the Khazar letters, the one who converted the state to Judaism. The Khazar letters are interesting, but their historiography is less interesting. So the Khazars, uh, which are, which, by the way, before the Khazars, there were other nomadic groups, but they weren't Turkic, as far as we know. Um, but eventually, all things come to an end, and so did the Khazar state. Uh, they got sacked once, basically. Itil, they're... Uh, their capital city 
got sacked. And much like many of these uh, nomadic states who uh, become dependent upon trade, uh, maintaining their main trade output, in this case their capital, safe and sound is crucial because once it uh, goes down, it becomes very hard to recuperate. With the fall of the Khazars is where the is where the Cumans and other West Turkic groups come into play. The Cumans, the Kemeks, the Kipchaks, the relation between these people are, well, uh, oh, and the Peshnegs. Gun nuts will know that the that there is a gun named after them. Uh, besides that, they and and yeeting Romania again. Yeah, they. I mean, and and a lot of these groups also f- feature in, in in a lot of the early Russian chronicles, like the tale of Igor. So, a lot of these groups, uh, their relationship, which, which is you know, that's how we know a lot of the things we know about them. So, a lot of relations of these groups are complicated. And and to add and to add, I'm going to go back further in time to evoke the weird case of the Avars, which we don't even really know if they were Turkic. I mean, for all we know, uh, also the Avars predate um, predate the Khazars. But as I was going to say, their how their Turkishness is um, questionable because by the time they uh, settled down, they had adopt uh, they had adopted the Slavic languages of their people. So. There, there's some debate as to what they were, and more to the point, and this is the reason why I invoke them, was their name. When they were, I think, uh, well, when the Byzantines were either being giving tribute to or were signing a trade deal, another nomadic group, can't for the love of me, uh, for the life of me, remember which one, came uh, to the Byzantines um, for diplomatic reasons and informed the emperor that uh, they weren't Avars. They were, in fact, the Vachianites, and they were an escaped clan of slaves, as it were. Uh, and uh, much ado is done of this uh, of this thing, because this uh, the this Avar case is often used as the uh, as like the standard to say that a lot of these peoples, these Turkic peoples we just mentioned, might have just been a clan that took a name. Because of the etymology of many of these names is kind of obscure. We have good evidence for the Cumans, uh, that their name means uh, blonde, basically, or fair-haired, which means that they were either blonde or were uh, or were red-headed. So red-haired, I mean. So because 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 quirks of language, I guess. Um, I mean, we know about the Cumans due to, Genu- to Genoese missionaries trying to convert them via their colonies. The, uh, the, rest, the rest of these people are incredibly obscure. Though we have to mention that I think it was inside the Cuman Kipchak Confederation that there will, we see the first mention of a people called the Tartars. Uh, again, those of us who are Russian, uh, who are uh, who are Russian, or perhaps uh, Ukrainian as well, will will know the importance of these people. Truth is, we don't know actually if these early Tatars are related to the later Tartars, because uh, the Mongols came and uh, kind of yeeted a lot of these Turkic peoples into oblivion, uh, also known as Hungary at the time. Uh, yeah. Other time, um, yeah, yeah. 
I, I think what's also interesting here, at least, um, is like you you still have the remnants, like the the I think it's the Kalmyaks who are still like a Mongolic people in um in those post-date uh, the Mongol invasions by quite a lot. They they come the Kamilks came there in the 16th century. Hence why they're still um they were and still are majority Buddhist and not Muslim, unlike the early unlike uh, what unlike the other uh, Mongol, Turco-Mongols, which for, for simplicity's sake, let's refer them to Tartars, since now we're basically talking about them. The Kamiks are not related to these early ones, hence that why their majority is still like Buddhist and such. Well, I don't think they're, they're still majority, but they have a significant presence of Buddhists and the like. The, yeah. Yeah. So you, you were saying about the, the Tatars and their connection with uh, like Turkey Tatar, sort of northern Tatars. Um, but the I was wondering um, how, like, with the I think it's the Golden uh, uh, Horde. Um, what what sort of was the real impact of the Golden Horde upon like the reconstitution of these Tatars? And um, yeah, and I think we can probably also start talking about the Ilkhanate. The Golden Horde was. Um, First, uh, the Golden Horde was responsible uh, for inadvertently creating Russia via massive corruption, but that's a different topic. Um, yeah, the, the issue here is you don't know the connection, that's what I said, because the Mongols came, uh, then the Mongol Empire broke up, you have the Golden Horde, and uh, you have Russian chroniclers referring to the Golden Horde as Tartars, basically. I mean, the entire region was at one point named Tartaria, even before the, well, slightly before the Mongols uh, came to dominate. So we have no exact clue, but we t some believe that this is because there were a lot less Mongols in, um, in the Golden Horde, basically, and that they embraced a lot more pre-existing Turkic peoples into their mix in a way, say, the early Chagatid dynasty didn't. In fact, the Chagatid, the Chagatai state uh, broke in half over this. Well, more about religion, which was at the time associated with the Turks, but still. And the, and well, obviously what we would now call the, Mong uh, the Mongol state, uh, the Yuan dynasty also obviously did not have many Turks. So the, the one belief, I cannot say, with good, uh, with good, on good authority, that it is the majority belief, is that they got called Tartars because there were a lot less Mongols there. And it can be said that in the Golden Horde, it's more of a case of uh, Mongols who got Turkified both culturally and genetically, vis-a-vis -vis the other cases where it is a mixture of both, uh, of, uh, Turk, of Mongolicized Turks and Turkified Mongols, basically. Also, in case you, in, dear listener, in case you aren't aware, the, if if the origin of the Turk of the Turkic people is a horrible clusterfuck, the or, the origin of the Mongols is equally complicated, and we're not going to approach it. Um, yeah, because we we uh, we all agree here on the the Altic hypothesis. Um, so there's there's no real debate. Um, but the everyone knows Turkish is the language of the sun. Truly, truly, uh, monarchism unfiltered comes out swinging in favor of sun language theory. 
Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, because you know uh, the Tower of Babel was in um, in Central Asia, um, but the I think um, one of the interesting things with, especially when you're talking about sort of genetic and uh, cultural continuity, is this point that like most of these dynasties, so uh, most of these groups are like a kind of massive mix of like pretty much everything, um, and there's you know like the the these kinds of step nomads are. Um, ethnically highly sort of very much a mix and it's like you know like um a group one group will displace another group and then incorporate the group um or one group will sort of consume another or expel and generally um they the kind of differences between the groups are largely a case of language or or religion is sort of an even bigger thing um and i think in terms of like why you see a lot of these um dynasties persianized which you see with like the ilkhanate as well and so forth is that i think culturally they remain connected with um with with the step and this kind of cultural connection with the step when forced through the obvious points of them being in the near east or whatever um basically means that they end up filtering their entire culture through like a persian lens and uh adopting sort of more persian style stuff or um or they sort of are semi-Nestorian, semi-Manichaean, and they, they'll use sort of cultural stuff from them. So like the um, Turkic scripts are derived from from Manichaean scripts. Um, and when I say Manichaean scripts, I mean like uh, the scripts used for the Manichaean religious texts, um, which is sort of an interesting cultural continuity overlap um, that I think is not... Uh, uh, isn't that specifically the case with the Uyghurs, if memory serves? Yeah, so yeah, the Uyghurs were were Manichaeans, and they converted to Buddhism, um, and then, then, oh, sorry, no, the, the Uyghurs were Manichaeans who then converted to Buddhism, and then post the destruction of the Oirats, converted to Islam. And or sort of contemporaneous to the destruction of the Oirats, con- convert to Islam, um, and then they sort of colonize. They're brought in by the Chinese to colonize the former Oirat lands, because the Chinese, the Qing, uh, perform a genocide against the Oirats. Um, they kill eighty percent of the Oirat population. Um, and that sort of destroys Central Asian Buddhism. Um, Central, Asian Central Asian Tibetan Buddhism was already kind of in a bad shape before that, but fair enough. Well, yeah, I mean, it was in a bad shape post the defeat of the Yaon dynasty, but um, the, yeah, I mean, you know, like, yeah, the Oirats were Tibetan Buddhists 
followers of the Dalai Lama. So, um, and then the, the, the Qing wiped them out in the in the eighteen thirties. No, eighteen thirties. It can't be. That's too late. I thought the white genocide of the Oirats was like sixteen twenty, sixteen thirty. Like that's way seventeen fifty five. Wow. I guess I guess we should have just met at the middle. <laughs> yeah. So they yeah they wipe out the Dzungar. Yeah. It, yeah. Uh, now I know. Yeah, the Dzungars, not the Oirats. Do I, do I the Dzungars were Oirats. Yeah, they were part of the Oirats, but the Oirats yeah. Yeah, means a larger people means a more. The Oirats are a subdivision of the Mongols, and the Zungars were had defeated the other Oirat tribes and incorporated them into a single Khanate. Um, there's about 60,000 left, but the largest group were the Zunghar, who were wiped out. Um, and, yeah, so there's about 15,000 left, basically, and they were completely assimilated. The Zunghar Khanate and the, the genocide thereof were basically like they were, yeah, they were basically completely wiped out, and that led to the the colonization of the colonization of that region of China, which is now Uyghurstan or, or, or Turkestan, to to uh, Hui and Turks and and so forth. Um, and, but yeah, I mean, the, the, the big thing that I think should be emphasized is the kind of cultural, there is this kind of generalized mix and in sort of Turkestan, Kazakhstan, or in Turkestan and Tajikistan and, um, and that kind of regions near the more southerly, they are highly Persianized. Kazakhstan northwards again there, um, more Turkic, and then um, westward there, or sort of eastward, they're more Chinese. Um, and they're all this sort of cultural continuity of they like variously Turkic groups, um, or Mongol. Um, I mean, to, to go slightly back to the Ilkhanate, which I which was something uh, that I forgot to mention, is the Al-Khanate was unique amongst the various uh, post-Genghis Khan Khanates because it simulated hard to, like, local culture. Like, the last, um, the last Ilkhanate rulers didn't even look Mongol, basically. The Ilkhanate was unique in the fact that it simulated hard into Persianate culture. Like, I think even at the end, like, even Mongolian... Was no longer even the language of the army. It was wholly Persianized. Yeah, and and so the the that's um, I think that's in large part because of the kind of disconnection of the, the like the Mongol conquest happens, and then kind of instantly there you know if your if your capital is in like Baghdad or wherever, um, and you know your uh, your like it's third generation. You, you all your wives are um, Persians. You're not going to have much connection with with uh, the Mongols. And I mean, this is kind of 
like this this is kind of point you know if you read the secret history of the mongols these are kind of points that they themselves make that you know we will begin to live in cities and we will become weak and all this and you need to stay out of cities and all this kind of stuff um and i think yeah it's, it's kind of obvious that they would have they would move towards assimilation because why would you be a kind of why would you live in rome and be a barbarian it's sort of the classic question i think i mean fair enough fair enough like that checks out yeah it's like how it's like how the uh the is the ismai the nizari ismaili imamate uh is even you're like you've this uh Macosk, you're gonna have to like convert them to using Portuguese as like the courtly language. Um, you're going to have to make the Ismaili religious language uh, Portuguese or like at, um, at worst Latin to, to kind of get them to integrate into Portugal. Um, seeing as the Ismailis, Ismailis imam lives in Lisbon. Um, Who says they aren't already? <laughs> yeah, obviously. But yeah, so the, the I think... I think this is kind of an important um, important point is that there is like the question of why do these groups always seem to assimilate? I think is kind of um, which doesn't really actually happen for the Arabs. The Arabs never the Arabs um, never really assimilated, and and the Persians obviously come back with a vengeance, whereas you know. The Turks are like modern Tur- Turkey is only sort of vaguely connected even really with any kind of Turkishness, like original Turkishness, or even its own like history, really. Because um, Ataturk's whole thing of like creating a modern secular state did entail the abandonment of significant portions of their own identity. Uh, in the pursuit of secularity or whatever. Um, and it basically, it's the, the, the question then of why, why do these earlier dynasties assimilate, say the Mughals or, or um, the Golden Horde or um, whoever else? Obviously, it is case by case, but I think especially in the cases like especially in cases like the um like the seljuks or uh similar groups even maybe you could argue this is true of the mamluks um i think the biggest reason is basically that the there was a kind of cultural prestige and now still is around persian and arabic that there was not around Turkic, uh, the Turkish languages. Um, and I think that was in large part because of this kind of cultural legacy that Persia and, and uh, the Arab world have that the Turks did not have. And that prestige, I think, was in large part in the case of Persia was due to its antiquity and in the case of the Arabs is because of Islam. And on... on- well, we, we, we would be finishing up shortly. I just wanted to 
abridge one final topic that we mentioned twice but never approached, which was the Mamluks. Um, this, the, for, those of, for those of you who just were here for Turkish dynasties, then I suppose you can... Now we're going to talk about Mamluks, and contrary to popular belief, the Mamluks were never majority Turkic, though they did have elements. Mamluks are interesting because they were non-Turkic slave soldiers, basically. They, however, much like the Turks, they also had a habit of, of, of just cooping the, well, not always, because the Turkic, uh, the Mamluk dynasty of Iraq was put into place by the Ottomans. They would, did not actually coup anyone. But the Mamluk dynasty of India and the more, in the most famous one, the Mamluk dynasties of uh, Egypt did reach power via cooping. The Mamluks of um, Egypt famously cooped the Ayyubid dynasty. I think in, in later install, installing the Burji. But the, um, the Mamluks were kind of interesting because, yes, they were slave soldiers. They did not stop being slave soldiers throughout, and, uh, rem but were the elite of society and the power holders. In fact, as, as far as ethnic identity goes, in the early days of the... Um, in the earlier days of the of, of their existence, they were in fact majority uh, Georgian Christians. In fact, I mean so much so much so that we have uh, evidence that they funded uh, schools and churches in uh, homeland Georgia. Uh, when well, when uh, when Georgian exports uh, measure up to Stalin, I guess the Mamluks are a, are a good thing to be proud of. Uh, proud sons of Georgia, the Mamluks. The um, yeah, I mean, because because they were they were like I think that um, the Egyptian elite is now still like majority Turkish uh, Chechen Chechen because of the Mamluks. Um, the Georgian uh, the Georgian Mamluks clans got um, genocided by Ali Pasha in the in one of the squares of uh, Cairo. I can't quite remember which one was it. The Mamluks were interesting because, I, and I think this was your point, I am, that uh, Machiavelli considered the Mamluks an example of a republic. Yes, yes, he did. Um, this is in The Prince. He, he, discusses, um, he discusses, in the case of um, a, a, a state or a, um, a state with republican traditions, uh, and he names these examples of Venice and... Um, <clears throat> Venice and uh, Egypt, Mamluk Egypt, um, or the Mamluks, um, the, the, the manner in which the prince must go about his activities is different because of the existence of a, like, a, basically a constitution um, where, you know, uh, the Duke of Milan or where, like, the, you know, these kinds of med caudilos uh, that you find in Italy, essentially, um, can do, they, he basically just thinks, you know, they can do whatever the fuck they want because, like, there's no kind of legitimate manner of succession. It's just sort of everyone for himself. Um, so, yeah, he, he did consider them, and he, he reflects then on that, um, and he did consider them... Um, to be Republican. And I, I think he has a serious point there. 
um, which is that they had a manner of succession um, that was more coherent and more organized really than like Italian succession or, or uh, Byzantine would be the other comparable thing. Um, or even possibly some monarchies, though monarchies I think are slightly different again. Yes, the Mamluks. Uh, the, the succession has to be understood in the topic of like patriated succession. Basically, the Mamluk clans agreed on who would be successor. And to, to, to go into further detail, there you can basically break the Mamluk dynasty into two periods. Uh, these periods comp com compose the two dynasties that ruled over them. A thing we need to point out, though, is that although the state is called Mamluk, uh, state of Egypt, Mamluk Egypt, what have you, and the um, and the Mamluks were the elite, the dynasties, the the heads of state and technically government, I guess, uh, of the two dynasties that Mamluk Egypt had were not Mamluk themselves. They were put into place by the Mamluks, basically. Um, so that aside, in the second dynasty, uh, whose name, again, I forget, is when the succession really became uh, more uh, streamlined and accorded. Basically, um, it, it had to be agreed upon before the current sultan died and could be uh, stopped or deposed if the Mamluk clan said so. So in some ways, it was more streamlined than uh, what than Machiavelli's era Italy, yes. And of course, more streamlined than Byzantium, but Byzantium was its own, was its own can of fish. Yeah. yeah. Um, now, Brond, you wanted to, you wanted to make an, uh, like a disclaimer. Yeah. yeah, so the first one is a disclaimer, because this, this episode, you know, there's been some hot takes, and uh, I, I think, I, I feel like I just, I wanted to say that, you know, like we used terms as best as we knew or could remember and our intention was not to offend anyone to make any spicy ethnographic claims about the current day and the second much more joyful thing i want to say is the next episode is the second ever q and a so if you want to ask questions then join the discord link in the description of the youtube video and perhaps into the description of wherever else you listen to this, but I don't know how that works. But yeah, so if you want to ask us questions, that's going to happen on Discord. And uh, yeah. And we'll likely advertise elsewhere, but yeah. Yeah. Have a, have a good uh, evening, morning, whatever time of day it will be for you. Um, we've had sort of good discussion, and I think uh, it's yeah. an interesting topic. Yeah. See you next time. Good night. See you next time.